Welcome to Rethinking Health, a branch of the Australian Physiotherapy Association podcast family. I'm your host, Courtney White, and if you haven't joined us on any APA podcasts before, then welcome. The aim of this podcast is to shine a light into the proverbial dark corners of the beast that is health and healthcare in Australia. We're going to do that by starting to break down some of the myths and factoids that still bounce around in this space, and also by starting off some conversations around some of the things that occur throughout all of our lives that might be a little embarrassing or uncomfortable to discuss. In this episode, we are going to focus on men's health in particular, and we're going to do that for a number of reasons, but most namely, to this day, men across the world live around five years less than women do. While some of that does boil down to genetics, a fair chunk can be attributed to less than stellar healthcare behaviour. A disproportionate number of medical conditions suffered by men are left either completely untreated or left for longer than they should be. And that's a problem because sometimes a condition that might be ignored because it's a little embarrassing could actually be an indication of a much deeper issue. For example, did you know that erectile dysfunction as gloomy as that may seem on its own, can actually be a prompt to visit a health professional about your heart health. Well, it can, but there are a lot of options available for treatment. And the earlier things like this are recognized, diagnosed and treated, the better. In the hopes of sharing some vital and hopefully reassuring information to start to change these gendered narratives around health, I sat down for a chat with men's health physiotherapist Joe Milios to discuss some of the common conditions that men encounter, some of the options for treatment, and who to see when. Just before we start, this episode is proudly supported by Flexies, Australia's number one heat wrap. It's been clinically proven to be effective for back pain relief, lasting up to 15 hours. Thank you very much, Flexies, for your help with this podcast. Let's get into it. All right, Joe, how are you doing? Well, to be perfectly honest, I'm a little tired after a busy conference because it's been wonderful. Yeah, it's been a long couple of days, but a good couple of days. Absolutely. Learning done. <laughs> so that's good. So I guess to start off with, Joe. Can you give us a little bit of an indication on what you do, what your work involves and what your interest area is? Okay, what I do is basically um, work with males who may have problems with their bowel, bladder or sexual function, particularly men who have prostate cancer. That's the main area that I first started working with. But now it's evolved to seeing men who have a whole range of urological disorders, such as overactive bladder or just stress incontinence from a range of different causes, things like um, pelvic pain and pudendal neuralgia, a whole range of things that really require me to have skills in pelvic health as well as musculoskeletal health, which makes everyday challenging and interesting and covers all those diverse topics. Amazing. Now, because I'm not a physio, you said quite a few words there that I recognise, but I maybe don't exactly know what they mean or entail. So for me and the listeners, um, can you just give us a little bit of an indication on what, I mean, I think we can mainly guess what an overactive bladder means, but I guess from like a therapeutic standpoint what does that actually entail stress incontinence and then you said a word that I've never heard before pudendal neuralgia that's it so overactive bladder I'll see a patient 
often referred to me through the urologist that the GP for this particular person may have suspected that they're having problems like an enlarged prostate because they go to the toilet too many times during the day and during the night. Quite often the urologist will do his thorough medical review and perhaps even do a bit of a look inside, something called a cystoscopy, which is a camera up uh, the urethra into the bladder, and find that there's absolutely nothing wrong and no need for any surgical intervention. Uh, So I'll often get referred those patients and pretty much what they need to do is just improve the strength of their pelvic floor and maybe have a little bit of opportunity to do some bladder training and an opportunity to potentially modify their fluid intake and their fluid habits to be healthier and put less pressure on the bladder. It's often quite a simple fix. It's just about habit changing. When it comes to pudendal neuralgia, well, I didn't know what it was 10 years ago. And pudenda means nerve of the private parts or shamefuls. So when someone has pudendal neuralgia, they actually have inflammation of the nerve that supplies those private parts. And it's a difficult conversation to seek help for. And the challenge for me has been to try and get men to feel comfortable with opening up about these issues because traditionally men are very shy when it comes to the private parts. And particularly being a female, I want to ensure that I respect the fact that I personally will not experience that. So do lots of chats, lots of questions, and just try and keep the door wide open for anything that they might want to raise. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because obviously anything to do with private parts is going to get a little bit awkward or get a bit of a chuckle. But especially, I guess, in this country, specifically and across the world, men do seek help less often than Mm. women do and I wonder if you have any insights into how that can change uh, how we can kind of all work together to change that culture and and maybe what men can do to get on board with their health especially in this area. Sure Um, pretty much you're spot on all around the world men are reluctant to seek help for their health issues and that's a lot of the cultural things around just what it is to be a man and have those concepts of masculinity and strength and independence and sort of pushing through it the things that we know men particularly of older generations have just grown up with so what we want to do is try and encourage men to better kind of scanning of themselves to sort of recognize if things are starting to change early rather than waiting till there's a catastrophic event before they seek help sadly we know that all around the world men live five years less than women and um, it's a lot to do with their health issues that they have being left too late. So they might go from being something minor to then developing to um, metastatic disease. Prostate cancer is an example of that. So ways that men can uh, ease that burden for themselves is to access a lot of the really wonderful public health campaigns that we have, such as Movember. It's coming up for Movember soon. That's a whole month of men's health promotion that focuses on prostate cancer, testicular cancer and depression. And so there'll be a lot of media coverage, wonderful resources to access online, lots of events around and the opportunity to grow a mo. Could be a fundraising event you might like to do, but bringing a little bit of humour into men's health always works really well. Then there's other campaigns around Laugh Without Leaking, World Continence Week. That's a problem for women, but it's also a problem for men in my experience. So just feeling comfortable by realising that this is a normal part of the body and it's just another muscle group or another organ that health professionals are working with daily. So for us, it's like I could be talking to a man about 
changes in his penis. And for me, it's sort of as simple as talking about the weather. I know men are quite mortified when they're first having those discussions. But generally, I make quite an effort to establish trust and rapport from the first few minutes, usually with a strong handshake. (laughs) Perfect. I mean, I guess um, one of the really difficult things to talk about, I guess, Mm -hmm. for men in this area is going to be erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've done a bit of work in this area and you've done a bit of research. Can you give us a little bit of an indication on what maybe causes that sometimes and what to look out for and if that's going to lead to anything worse in the future or just give us a little bit of an erectile dysfunction chat if you can. (laughs) Well, erectile dysfunction, what does that actually mean? It means an inability to have sexual performance that is satisfactory for the man and his partner. And there can be a host of causes for that. So what we know is from men aged 40, 40% of men will have some signs of erectile dysfunction. Problems with basically getting firmness or maintaining their erection or having problems with orgasm and ejaculation. And then for every 10 years, there's a further increase by 10%. So 50% of men at 50 and 60% of men at 60 will have erectile dysfunction. So a few years ago, I had the opportunity to work with um, the Prostate Cancer Foundation in Perth, and we have a wonderful man there called Kim Ledger, and he's the father of Heath Ledger. And um, he was the ambassador for our prostate active bike ride. And we actually had discussions sometimes. I was the team physio and he was the uh, main driver, just on the side of the road while we're waiting for the cyclist to come through. And one day he said to me, He said, Joe, I've got this feeling from the young mates of my sons that openly discuss this with me that there's quite a problem with erectile dysfunction in young men. And I hadn't heard of that before. This goes back seven or eight years. But since then, I have to say, I've been really shocked. So there's a whole wave of um, young men that I see quite often now who have erectile dysfunction, penile pain, and something called hard flaccid disorder. What that means is their pelvic floor muscles have got quite tight because of tension and anxiety and perhaps some uh, psychological distress around uh, a previous lack of performance or a change in partnership or relationship breakdown. And what tends to happen is they get a lot of stress and they tend to hold tension in their pelvis and they have like a semi-erect painful penis for a lot of the day. It's also linked to pornography and sometimes to aggressive masturbation. And uh, there's a whole wave of new problems arising out of there. Sometimes I've had patients come and see me, young men in particular, who feel great distress because they can no longer relate to a, a female. They're so used to watching pornography that they haven't really got the ability to relax and enjoy being with a human touch. And, you know, I've got young teenagers myself and so... I'm a little bit concerned about some of these things changing, but um, yeah, it's just important to know that this is normal to have some problems, but it's okay to ask for help and that it tends to be things like more serious issues like cardiovascular disease, which affects men's erectile function, not really being an issue until you're a little bit older. But I always tell my patients that their heart health and their hard health are related So if they notice any changes or concerns with their sexual performance or the appearance of their penis or testes or lumps or bumps or pain, to straight away go and seek some help from their their doctor. 
Yeah, absolutely. That is so interesting. I have never heard about that before with the young men's mm. erectile dysfunction becoming more common. That's scary. It's really scary. Wow. Mm. Okay. And so if someone was, let's say yep. you took that cohort of people, mm-hmm. who do they go to first? Because I mean, if they're feeling concerned about talking about it, I'm sure they don't want to be bouncing around different health professionals telling their story more than once, you know? The first thing they do is Google it. So they can then come along with a little bit of information and sometimes they've got a high level of distress. So, for example, pudendal neuralgia, you can start looking that up and it leaves you down a a very dark tunnel of all sorts of potential chronic pain that's going to last forever. Lots of not-so-pleasant stories out there. But typically, when I see guys for the first time, they have been referred to me from a urologist, so that means they've been through the pathway of seeing their GP who then sends them on to a urologist, who then makes sure that there's no serious pathology, who then might say, in the past, I'm really sorry, but I can't help you. Maybe try these antibiotics, but you've got nothing wrong. It may be in your head. See you later. There's a wonderful shift happening now where urologists in my field are recognising that there is such a thing as pelvic pain, which is often a physical element to it, with a lot of the physiotherapy work now showing us in research that we just need to often learn to relax the pelvic floor rather than strengthen it and that will often decompress a lot of the nerve tissue and hypersensitivity. So the worlds of urology, women's health in its origins and musculoskeletal physiotherapy are really coming together. I'll often say to my patients, particularly the ones with pain in the pelvis, it's not really a plumbing problem. It's the wiring to the plumbing that's the problem. And I suppose as well, with physiotherapy being so multidisciplinary, and I understand that that's a big word that I only learned a little while ago, which means that you guys work a lot with other health professionals. A lot of this is going to come back down to mental health as well. Am I right in saying that? So basically, we know that men like to work, they like to be active, they get a sense of pride and satisfaction from being strong and masculine. And so basically, if we can enhance that sense of self-esteem through exercise and getting stronger, that tends to immediately elevate a man's mood and a feeling of comfort or contentedness within himself. So sadly, we've got a crisis globally. One man per minute around the world commits suicide. 80% of all suicides are committed by males. And in Australia, that represents eight men per day and once again 80% of suicides are committed by men so it's about twice as many young men dying of suicide than of motor vehicle accidents. Just recently we lost a, a, an Aussie legend in Danny Frawley and he himself was very open and um, passionate about the mental health experience of males in Australia. He actually had a radio program called No Man Should Stand Alone. So the feeling was that potentially in his own recent passing, there was the mental health elements to that as well. So we need to be open, we need to be aware. We know that even in um, programs like the Lifeline Call-In Centre, 40% of the calls come from men, and yet men are representing 80% of the suicide rate. Regional areas are much more severe as well. So... The first thing you can do is um, get busy with exercise. So yoga, running, darts, whatever it might be, just doing something will automatically 
put you in a better mindset and improve your mental health. Absolutely. And I wonder as well with those high stats of mental health issues for men, I mean, I know that that's going to be influenced by a range of things, but I'm just wondering whether or to what extent, I guess, those issues that might already be present have an influence on the physiological stuff that you were talking about before in terms of erectile dysfunction or anything else like that. Do you see a relationship, a reciprocal relationship between those two things? Yeah, well, this is um, something that I won't say who, but a urologist that I work with one day said to me, Joe, he goes, the patients that um, I'm sending to you, I'm calling them my tight-ass patients. And I said, what do you mean by that? It sounds awfully disrespectful. And he said, well, they're just holding a lot of tension. Oh. And they're very wound up sort of people and they're like almost drawing themselves up off their seat because they're just so anxious and wound up. And he said, they're always high achievers. They've got the A-type personality. They're often obsessive compulsive with what they do. They might be cyclists that ride 600 kilometres a week. And so they're just pushing, pushing, pushing. And uh, they just don't know how to switch off. And so he said, they're the ones I can't fix. You need to see those ones for me. So I thought that was just a really interesting overview. And I've actually come to find that he's pretty much right. Yeah. Um, So people who are very cruisy and relaxed, they tend to have a lot less of this muscle tension developing in their body. And it might be tension headaches that cause these problems. So someone with a tight neck will end up with migraines. You see a physio or, you know, get a massage or do a little bit of a heat pack at home and it'll often sort that out. Well, it's the same problem. It's often referred to as the headache in the pelvis. It's just a tight pelvic floor muscle. So that reduces blood flow to the area. The blood flow can mean that muscles are in spasm. That means there's compression on arteries, like something called the internal pudendal artery. Then there can be a lack of response to normal touch for sexual function. Um, There can be difficulty emptying the bladder. So if someone's got this distress and tension in their pelvic floor we just call it overactive pelvic floor and they need to learn some relaxation exercises to do before they for example empty their bladder so a whole range of things can reflect the physical and mental connection and I personally think that you can't really separate them yeah no absolutely I agree do you know what's funny is you're talking about men having a really tight pelvic floor muscle and this is going to sound ridiculously stupid (laughs) but pelvic floor muscles to Mm -hmm. me have sounded like a a female thing and I know men have them I now I know men have them but it's just not really something that we talk about in relation to men it's always talked about in relation to women that pelvic floor muscle Mm. do you notice that there's a a disconnect in understanding with the people that you see absolutely you know the one thing that I'm very wary of aware of should I say is that When I have a new patient referred to me, I know that he's very unlikely to know that, A, he has a pelvic floor. So it's not just me? No. Okay, great. They're shocked. And they often say, I've come to learn about women's business. And then they're embarrassed and they're feeling, you know, completely isolated in what they're here for. They've never had a conversation with anyone before about their, you know, private parts. And... I have been really deliberate in trying to make sure that the language I use to help explain the male anatomy is really simple and really accessible. So um, I worked out a few years ago that when it comes to the male anatomy, the word nuts is far more acceptable than uh, any other word internationally to describe the male testes. So I came up with a phrase for men to focus on lifting their nuts to their guts. 
<laughs> when it came to the pelvic floor exercises. And I basically start that by just saying, while I'm talking through and showing a patient um, the model, to just relax in that position, which is generally their sitting position while we're just having a chat, and to just gently relax their belly and their buttock muscles and just let their shoulders drop and just try and just soften into their pelvis. And then to very gently think of what it's like to be stopping the flow of urine. And then to just gently draw up the base of the penis, lifting the nuts to the guts. as one action to basically compress the areas needed for continence control. And then to just simply let that go. So it's really important to also understand if someone has a continence issue, relating to urine function, they need to focus on the urinary sphincter. Traditionally, we've always done treatments focusing on the back sphincter because that's the way we assess a male pelvic floor. It's via a digital rectal examination that no man is happy to uh, entertain. (laughs) You don't Um, say. So much so that the Urological Society no longer recommends that as a test for prostate cancer at a GP level, rather just the PSA test as the annual test that's um, recommended which is only a blood test, and if there's any concerns with that, then men do go on to see a urologist and they will have this um, rectal examination. Um, yeah, but it's, it's really quite fascinating. I'm going to bring up something that we haven't talked about yet, but I have heard you mention before because we have met before, <laughs> and I, I'm going to butcher this name. I'm so sorry. Periones? Periones? Oh, my okay. gosh, I got it right. No, I just oh. ossified it a bit. Oh, Periones? <laughs> Is that a beer that you've seen somewhere? Because I can't walk I'm past one of those beers and not have a little bit of a double take myself. I could never drink one. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Please correct me. What, 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 no, what you're very it? close. It's just pay Ronies. Pay Ronies. But it sounds more like a beer. It, it, it is the beer. Oh the my Italian goodness. beer. So the spelling is P E Y R O N I E apostrophe S. Okay. Disease. Googling that now. Yeah. yeah. Great. So. It's an unfortunate name because Pyrones itself is the name of Napoleon's personal physician who was the first to diagnose it in 1743. And Pyrones in this case basically refers to any curvature of the penis. So this is a problem that has now been occurring and as far as we know for thousands of years, really difficult to treat though. So Peyronie's disease is something I stumbled across myself. I always say it was the, the bend in the road of my men's health physiotherapy career <laughs> that I didn't expect. And what happened was I had this young patient who I discharged from my care who was a prostate cancer patient who had had a radical prostatectomy. So he'd come along very well and got his continence back within a few weeks of surgery and um, was a young carpenter back to work and back to doing all his things without any concerns What we know is the erectile function takes up to two years to recover following surgery and that men have to be really proactive with something called penile rehabilitation. In this man's case, he knocked on my door one year after his surgery in tears and he showed me a photograph of his penis and it was twisted and rotated to the left about 75 degrees. He felt a hard lump in his penis as well and he was quite scared that the uh, cancer, prostate cancer, uh, returned. But what he actually had was something called Peroni's and um, it is difficult to treat and it has a bit of a strange pathway of potentially taking two years to stabilise. So there's an acute phase and a chronic phase and the acute phase is 12 to 18 months where men might notice changes and they can get pain, they can get curvature, they can get 
something called an indentation or they can get an hourglass appearance or a hinging effect. So when they go to have sexual activity, there's just a completely different looking structure there. That really distresses them. And they go and maybe put up with it for six months or a year and find that over that time they get more pain, more bend, and that lump gets bigger and bigger or harder and harder to the point that it can be calcified. So calcified peroneus is more difficult to treat. So in my own workplace, I started doing ultrasound in the very early stages of this one particular case, and we found that we were able to resolve a lot of the issue in his penis basically returned to near normal and certainly usable. So what we know is Peronis is now present in about 10% of men in the normal population and two-thirds of men with Peronis disease have cardiovascular disease. So we need to really think about what this actually means. If a man, and I'm, this has just been recommended by the International Society of Sexual Medicine, as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So if a man notices changes to his penis function or appearance in any way, he has a high risk factor for cardiovascular disease with, interestingly, about a three-year window between the onset of those changes to it potentially leading to a cardiac events such as a heart attack. So what we're saying here is if a man notices any of these changes I've talked about, don't delay. Go and see a GP. There are medications that can really help. We're now doing research to show that a physiotherapist could potentially help. You know, any physiotherapist will have access to this sort of treatment. It's really just sharing our knowledge. And there's um, the opportunity to, first of all, have a conversation with your GP to get blood tests done, to maybe get a coronary calcium score done, to really try and make better choices in food and diet and exercise. And uh, we want to minimise all of these things that potentially relate. So that hard health, heart health phrase that I like to use is really relevant. I actually learnt the hard way myself, or the difficult way, should I say, because one of my patients actually passed away halfway through my trial and he mentioned that he'd had some chest pain two days prior and he was a patient with Peyronie's disease and I said to him, you really must go and have a chat to your GP about this immediately. Go straight to the GP from here. There's a connection. He went to his GP and his GP started the process of follow-up, but unfortunately he had a massive heart attack and died. He drove his truck off the freeway and he was only 51 and um, it was quite devastating for me as well. He was a beautiful man. But from that point onwards in my research, I've just made it a duty to every, every bloke that I see to check in with him about his heart health and, and for him to be just aware of that little bit of factual knowledge that he can review himself in private. Absolutely. That's really interesting, that link, which when you think about it, makes total sense, but I wouldn't have pieced those together before. So that's really, really important information, obviously, for men to have, mm. that, that it really is important to get, even though it's embarrassing, and yes, and mm. it, it is, like, I, I get it, mm. but it's really important to go and get that seen too. You know what the most sensational thing is, and I think this is where social media has such a wonderful role to play we, we often think of it in negative terms but young people young men and I've got sons as well are very open and seeking help much earlier I've got a bundle of 18 to 25 year old male patients at the moment and they do really well because they want to understand it they want to work at it and they want it to be gone and they have a lot of motivation to get better and um 
I often teach them yoga and get them to do some relaxation techniques so that we can address their mental health a little bit in the background as well. But I feel really, really excited about men's health in the future. Um, for every generation, it's quite a stark difference. And um, I pretty much say now, I used to say if any man over 50 has got a completely different perspective on men's health. But now that's coming down, so... Um, it's refreshing. <laughs> it's really refreshing and it's interesting to hear you say that because I wouldn't have known that mm. that was the case. Um, I work in social media yep. and I do see these conversations coming up a little bit more, yep. but I, I didn't actually know that they had translated into seeking um, better healthcare. Mm. Other than social media and even, even about social media, can you elaborate on what you've seen in terms of the changing culture? I'm so excited because in my practice now because I've I've had the good fortune of seeing more than I think it was three and a half thousand men with prostate cancer for their surgery and a whole lot more who were just referred to me for other reasons long term because they see the their younger men coming through having a lot less issues than they did just because of the robotic and more sophisticated options available so what's basically happening is men are talking to each other and comparing notes and then it seems that there's so much conversation going on that if they hear the same story once or twice, it not only plants a seed for them, it actually gets them going. And so I have every day of the week guys coming in to see me, oh, my buddy said I should come and see you about some exercises. And then this other buddy that I saw said he's also seen you a couple of years ago. And then my brother's been. And, <laughs> and um, it's really nice, actually. There's a comforting um, conversation going on out there between guys. And it's definitely happening in all those places you would expect bowls clubs golf clubs men's sheds and everywhere in between (laughs) I guess being at a conference which we are right now the main topic of interest here is research and I know you've done a bunch in this area and I know we've we've covered a bit of it but can you give us anything maybe that we might need to know or we might be interested in about the treatment of any of the conditions we've talked about or anything that you think might be interesting to us? Yes, I'd probably like to mainly focus on prostate cancer because my journey started with the fact that I was a musculoskeletal physiotherapist and my brother was a newly registered urologist and he had done a lot of training in the UK and he came out to Australia with the new laparoscopic keyhole approach to prostate cancer, which wasn't done in Western Australia at the time. So he was the pioneer of that. And um, he had worked a little bit with physios in the UK and wanted to have pelvic floor available for his patients. The physios around him that had had experience had three-month wait lists and they were women's health physios. They could certainly look after the male patients, but he wanted his patients to be seen preoperatively and with the three-month wait list, that really wasn't working out. So he contacted me and said, Joe, would you like to help me with this? So it sounded really interesting to me and I've always been a bit of a tomboy, so... I looked into it. I wanted to do some postgrad training. At the time, there was no courses running in Western Australia. There was no postgrad women's health course even at the time. So I basically just said, I'm going to have to learn from you. So I followed him around um, for at least a year, watching him do surgery. And then week by week, he started sending me more patients. I used to do three patients a fortnight. Now I see it probably 60 to 80 patients a week. It's grown so much. It went from just a little thing to... A whole different shift in my career so what I noticed was a similar story though that men were getting their treatment done very well by the urologists their cancer was gone but the potential outcome on their quality of life was 
50% of the time not very good at all. And that at this time, this goes back to about 2006, no one was talking about their erectile dysfunction. So when a man has prostate cancer surgery and 80% of men who have prostate cancer that need treatment will select surgery these days, they're all going to become impotent and incontinent. Generally, they get better with time, but there's no guarantees. So if a man's got incontinence, he has to wear continence pad, and no man I've ever met is happy for that. So he wants to get out of them very quickly. And then secondly, his erectile function is going to be impotent. That is no erections, no more ejaculation, and no more pressure in his pants. And that is not something that I could ever understand. So I'm asking my guys all the time, they just say, I feel different. And I'm like, please explain what you mean because I need to really be able to relate to this. They often say things like, when you're a man, you wake up in the morning and you have like this fullness or this throbbing in your um, groin, which is very comforting because it's just you. And this operation causes that to immediately stop. So you you no longer get any sort of normal uh, sensations or arousal at all, even if you are in bed with your wife and you know she might reach over and touch you and once upon a time that was like a you know cue for you to move on um in a good way when all of those things stop happening it really does impact on a man's sense of self and self-esteem and a lot of the time they uh, lose their confidence and I was just really concerned that there's two physical side effects from this prostate cancer surgery and only one was being dealt with in my profession and um I had several conversations with my brother about sexual dysfunction he literally said to me joe i don't know why you keep talking about erectile function the guys aren't interested and i said i can't believe you say that because that's what they're bringing up with me and if you're not bringing it up with them then and they're really suffering without that management um anyway we ended up changing everything so we now have sexual health physicians work with us pre and post-operatively there's a whole service that's provided so men every step along the way can work with both. So my PhD, my desire for research is to fill in the gaps between men's health and women's health. For example, there's more prostate cancer than breast cancer. There's more deaths per year of prostate cancer than breast cancer everywhere, Australia and the world. There's a lot less funding for prostate cancer. But we can do really good things and it's all about this communication and and just breaking down some of the, the barriers between men accessing help. So yeah, just all starts the conversation. Totally. I didn't know that there was more deaths from prostate cancer than breast cancer because, I mean, you see often breast cancer awareness campaigns and things coming up, which is great. But obviously we need to make some more noise about prostate cancer. You know, it's such a good comment. And the thing that has really bothered me is that in a really good way, sport's been very embracing of breast cancer, which is awesome but not so embracing of prostate cancer. And I, I've got my own theories, but I'm pretty much sure that the men who are at the top of the hierarchy that could make the decisions about whether or not they want to promote breast or prostate cancer, say in AFL, you know, sporting or whatever it might be, maybe they're not so comfortable having the conversation. So they're of the age group that might be a little reluctant to, to open up about this topic as well. So I've actually been working with the Subiaco Football Club in Western Australia and we have a, an exercise program called PROST for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer. And one of my goals is to work with the APA and the Prostate Cancer Foundation in the future to bring that further into the community so that we can address all those things that men need to help their mood, their muscle and their masculinity. And um, 
Yeah, it's just so new for us to be having these conversations. Men's health was only officially introduced into the world of physiotherapy in South Africa in 2017 as a focus symposium. So we've only got two or three groups in the world, including the Australian New Zealand Physiotherapy Associations, that include the word men in their special interest groups. So we've got a long way to go, but we're coming along. (laughs) Yeah, and it's kind of cool that the physio profession is you know jumping on board pretty early and yeah, getting and getting yeah. pushing it forward yeah. so that's cool that's mm. something to be proud of so there is one um, public campaign that I'd really like everyone to know a little bit about can't say too much at the moment but a few hundred patients over the years have talked to me about the difficulty it might be say dealing with incontinence issues when they're wearing these continence pads because it seems that male toilets don't actually have provisions for sanitary purposes of course I don't venture into male toilets but these days, apparently, there's not even a waste paper bin. There's just often like a dry blower. So with one in six men in Australia getting diagnosed with um, prostate cancer and, say, 98% of them who need surgery, for example, needing um, continence pads, well, we've got a, quite a dilemma there. In fact, we know that 1.34 million Australian males are dealing with continence issues of the bowel or bladder today. So we need to make this sort of like reverse discrimination be righted so we need men to not feel embarrassed to access their toilet to not have to go into disabled unit if there is one and to not have to stay at home and um, be isolated because they can't have access with their very essential social need so I've been really lucky but I've had um, great support from the Continents Foundation of Australia the APA and the Prostate Cancer Foundation and we are working on a campaign to try and make bins more accessible for men and look out for a campaign coming soon where everybody across the community, from government to sporting arenas, shopping centres, health, parliament house, having the opportunity to run with it. It's only $300 per year to provide one sanitary bin. So, yeah, look out for a bins for blokes campaign coming soon in Australia. Awesome initiative because it's so interesting how these things just aren't thought about until it's brought up. It's the same with uh, having like change tables in yeah. men's bathrooms. Yeah. Why is that not there? That's just crazy to me. And that's me. actually a really good point because if you have the baby change tables, they now have a symbol. So there's no such symbol. So the Continents Foundation is working to design a symbol that we could you know, you only actually probably need one or two toilets in each male facility to be sanitary pad aware, just to make it so much easier for guys to be normal community members. Absolutely. I guess that kind of brings us a little close to the end of our chat. Mm-hmm. But I guess before we go, mm-hmm. anything last minute that you want to let the public of Australia know, women, men, everyone, about the work you do? Mm. I would really like to have guys understand that A, that they have a pelvic floor, and that B, it's got a couple of functions. And if they have problems like incontinence, leaking versus pain, then it may be some problem with the same condition. It could be a problem with their prostate. It could be a problem with their pelvic floor. Or it could be just something habitually that they're doing wrong, like sitting poorly, having a poor saddle on their bike seat. 
just a range of really simple solutions. So when it comes to someone like me dealing with males who may have pelvic floor conditions or something called prostatitis, what we really need to do is just get a good history from our patients to make sure that we know if they're in pain or they're in situations of frequency where they're wearing the loo too much or they're having some leakage, that we probably have to work those pelvic floor nuts to guts muscles either in what we call an up-training, meaning strengthening, or a down-training, meaning relaxing component. You really need to work with a pelvic therapist um, experienced to help you guide that. There's lots of ways of assessing it. Something as simple as an ultrasound is non-invasive, can simply be applied to the abdomen or the perineum to just give us a really good picture of what's going on the inside. And I always like to say to, to guys, we're going to work from the outside in, so we don't need to subject you to you know, any invasive procedures and whatever you're comfortable with is where we'll be. So get with the conversation, know you have your pelvic floor and ask your mates if they know how to do the nuts to guts exercise. <laughs> That's awesome. That is such a good piece of advice and a great place to leave it. Um, I guess from my perspective, yeah, same thing. Just don't be worried about reaching out to a health professional if you see anything wrong because like you were saying before the earlier the better it's not just about your performance in the bedroom mm-hmm. though that is important to a lot of yeah. people yeah it's also about you know your long-term health in the end absolutely right yeah thank you so much thank you for coming in it's been appreciated awesome. your questions <laughs> cheers joe Thank you so much for joining me on this foray into the world of men's health physiotherapy. I hope you learnt something new. I certainly did. I now know what Peyronie's disease is and I also know how to pronounce it, which is great. I also hope that this podcast goes a little way towards removing some of the fear, embarrassment, stigma and even just some uncertainty around this area of health because it really is so important. If following this podcast, you would like to go and visit a physiotherapist, one of the easiest ways of finding one in your area is to head across to our Find a Physio page. All you need to do is type into your search bar choose.physio and navigate to the Find a Physio section. Couldn't be easier. I just want to say one last thank you to Flexies. They are a proud corporate partner of the APA and they're also an exclusive partner of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation, which supports the profession by promoting, encouraging and supporting research that advances physiotherapy knowledge and practice. So a massive thank you to Flexies and a massive thank you to all of you for listening. I'll see you next time.